This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. Since our last interview way back in 2016, Princeton University sociologist Professor Matthew Desmond has won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction and seen his book Evicted named one of the decade's best. His work is also credited with transforming the conversation about housing in America and experts say saving over one million people from homelessness during the pandemic. In his latest book titled Poverty by America, the professor is reimagining the debate around the issue, arguing poverty persists in America because, among other things, the rest of us benefit from it in some way, shape or form. It's a wake-up call to people of means everywhere. Professor Desmond joins us tonight as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative to discuss how we can hopefully finally end poverty for good. Professor, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. That's good to be with you, Jack. So before we get to this book, which is just an, another um, deeply researched, evocative and provocative look at this issue, I'm curious about you personally because you have dedicated your professional life to a study of the, this idea of poverty, how it exists, why it exists, and what we can do to combat it. Why has this essentially become the central purpose of your professional life? I just hate poverty. I hate what it does to diminish us and to exhaust us and cut our lives short. Um, I grew up in a family without a lot of money. Uh, we had our gas shut off. We, I lost my childhood home to foreclosure. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the poverty that we experienced was nothing like the poverty I saw for my last book, Evicted. You know, I saw grandmas living without heat in the winter. I saw whole families getting evicted uh, all throughout the year. And this level of, of poverty and destitution in this land of riches really uh, unsettles me. You, you mentioned something which gets me to a question I wanted to ask you. You said poverty in this land of riches. And one of the things you write about is, is this paradox. You say mm -hmm. we are the most prosperous democracy in the world, and yet uh, we, are, we are engaged in such dramatic poverty. Why that, that conflict, that contrast? It is a paradox, and it is maddening, I, I find, because the richest country in the world certainly has the resources to end poverty, not just reduce it, but but truly the resources to end it. And the way I come down on this question is there's so much poverty in this land, not be, you know, in spite of our wealth, but because of our wealth. You know, a lot of us who are, who are privileged and protected benefit from poverty, often in ways we, we don't recognize. Let me, I'm going to get to that in a second, because I think th this is fascinating. And this is, in, in many ways, it's going to cause some discomfort, I think, for many of your readers. But when we're talking about poverty, is there a definition? Is one of the problems in dealing with poverty how we define it? In a way, yeah. I mean, poverty officially is a is an income level. Mm -hmm. So, a family of four lives below, I think, twenty eight thousand dollars a year. They're officially poor in, in America. 
There's about 38 million people here that that are under that line. That's one in nine of us. That's the population of Australia. Huge number. But there's plenty of hardship above the poverty line, too. You know, one in three folks in America live in a home taking in $55,000 or less. That's not quote unquote poor, but gosh, what else do you call it when you live in Miami or Boston or Seattle and trying to raise a few kids, you know, on $55,000 or less? And then there's just the utter fact that poverty isn't just a matter of low incomes. You know, it's often chronic pain on top of tooth rot, on top of, you know, debt collector harassment, on top of eviction and homelessness, on top of death come early and often. So poverty isn't just a line, it's this tight ball of, of agonies and humiliations. And I think that should spur us uh, to moral action. Make a couple of important points, and, and that is that we tend to think, well, here's a poverty line. If you're above it, you're fine. Yeah. And, and as you said, that that's not necessarily so. You talk about your experiences. I was raised by a single mother mm. you know, with four children, and we lost our house. And then mm. my mom went back to college to get her teaching degree. And, you know, we were above the line, but, you know, it was raising four kids, uh, you know, on a teacher's salary back mm. in the 1960s was not that easy. And we would exactly. not have been below the poverty line. But, you know, as we got closer to paychecks, you know, we were eating peanut butter and jelly. Um, and that was fine. Yeah. I still love peanut butter and jelly. So, that, you know, from personally, that's that's fine. But l- let me go to um, what what you mentioned here. Now, a couple of things that you mentioned. Um, and and the one thing I want to ask again is this this idea about poverty and definitions. Um, where does race enter into this this uh, calculus, if you will? Now, straight to the heart of it. You know, it's impossible to write about poverty in America without simultaneously writing about race in our present day systems of racial exclusion and our legacy of systematic racism. And one critical part of this is like, you know, racial privileges and racial disadvantages don't dissipate below the poverty line. And so that's why black poverty and white poverty are are quite different experiences. And the biggest thing to recognize here is that the kind of neighborhoods that uh, white poor families live in are really different than the kind of neighborhoods that black poor families live in. Uh, The typical black poor family lives in an extremely poor neighborhood, but that's not true for the typical white family below the poverty line. So a lot of those white families are struggling, you know, um, but they're also often sending their kids to schools that are um, uh, flourishing. They're often living in neighborhoods with much more economic advantage than low-income black families. That's just one example of how race and poverty intersect to complicate this, this picture. Let me go back to something that you touched on a minute ago when we're talking about definitions here of, of poverty. And one of the things you write about in your book is, is the idea that um, poverty is, your words, not simply not having enough money, but rather not having enough choices. Right. What does that mean? When you don't have a lot of choice, you get taken advantage of. And that's called exploitation. And I know that's a that's a hot word. That's a morally charged word. But I think a lot of us have been in situations like this where we have to take a bad bargain because, man, it's the only one we have. You know, a lot of us, for example, when we're in an accident and the ambulance arrives, we don't really ask what it's going to cost. We just we got to take care of the emergency. And that's the situation that poor families face all the time. So let's think about housing, for example. If you're a poor family, you only have usually one choice about where to live. You have to rent in the private market 
and give most of your income to the landlord and the utility company. That's the majority of poor renting families today. They're shut out of home ownership, and they're also shut out of public housing because the waiting list for our public housing uh, systems is not counted in years anymore in our biggest cities, it's counted in decades. So they've got one option, and often that means they overpay for a good that uh, is is not up to what they're paying for. You know, they're overcharged. And so a lot of low-income families, they're rent-strapped, not necessarily because of supply and demand dynamics or the housing crisis as a lack of, you know, not enough homes, although that's important. They're often overcharged because folks can, they don't have a lot of choice. And I think attacking that and expanding folks' choice is a huge part of what it means to address poverty today. Again, I want to go back to something you touched on, and, and I think it's reflected in the title of the book, Poverty by America, because people might look at that saying, what does that mean by America? And yeah. one of the, the core concepts you talk about is that poverty persists in this country because other people in many ways benefit from it. Yeah. Now, that that might be a discomforting thought to, to folks. Um, so let, let me ask you to explain that concept. Yeah. So many of us benefit from poverty because we consume cheap goods and services that the working poor produce, cheap goods and services that rely on rock bottom pay. Many of us who are invested in the stock market enjoy good returns on our investments, but many of those returns come at a cost, a kind of a human sacrifice in the country. Um, many of us protect certain tax breaks like the mortgage interest deduction or tax breaks for wealth transfers that starve anti-poverty programs from sufficiently deep funding. In in, in what way? That, that the money is going there instead of going possibly into uh, anti-poverty programs? Absolutely. Should I, should I give a few examples? Sure, absolutely. Sure. So in 2020, the nation spent $193 billion on homeowner tax subsidies, like the mortgage interest deduction. That's an entitlement. Every homeowner can take it. Most of that subsidy goes to families with six-figure incomes. Um, most families who are white in America are homeowners, but most families who are black and Latino aren't because of our systematic dispossession of people of color from the from the land. So $193 billion on homeowner tax subsidies that generally benefit the most privileged of us, but only $53 billion that same year on direct housing assistance to the needy, things like public housing or housing vouchers that reduce people's rent burden. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You know, we're giving most the families that need it the least. And then we have the audacity, you know, the shamelessness sometimes to ask, well, how could we afford doing more? And the answer is staring us right in the face. You know, we can afford it if the richest among us took less from the government. I, I said this concept might, might be discomforting to a lot of people because, and again, you talk about this, um, it, people who are reading this, who are in that those income socioeconomic brackets that you've talked about, many of them, I'm sure, even if they don't label themselves as progressives, many of them, I'm sure, would say, look, I'd like to do something to, to help combat poverty here. But in some ways, the book is suggesting that they are complicit because of all of these things. So how do you anticipate kind of getting over that emotional intellectual hurdle of somebody saying, I'd like to help, but wait a minute, you mean I've got, I can't have my mortgage deduction anymore? I think we as a country are ready for this challenge, actually. You know, most Democrats and most Republicans now believe that poverty is not a 
a product of moral failing, but as a product of unfair circumstances. We've shifted our vision as a country to really recognizing how the deck is stacked against so many folks today. Now we need to take another step and to say, do I contribute to those unfair circumstances? Am I am I part of this? I, I think we should be very weary of absolving theories of poverty. And I think that we should take some ownership. And that includes me. So this is something that my family has had to do as well, to look at the tax breaks we receive, the way we're consuming, uh, the way we vote, the, you know, to to really kind of take take ownership of this. And this is something akin to like climate change. You know, many of us know that climate change is a real issue and it and it really requires big policies, right? But it also requires us to search ourselves. How are we eating? What are we driving? How can we divest a little bit from this? And I'd love to see us do more of that when it comes to poverty reduction as well. Yeah, and I'm going to get to some more of that and some of your, your thoughts because some of them are fairly dramatic, um, certainly dramatic in terms of suggestions here. Um, you mentioned something, again, that I, I think is worth taking a deeper look at, and, and that is the idea of a personal agency. Mm-hmm. Because for a long time, part of the the view of poverty in America has been, and not by everybody and not completely, but a good part of it has been, well, wait a minute, you, you have to make better choices. You have to put yourself in a, a, a position where you can live the American dream. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So are, are you saying now that this notion of, of personal agency, bad decisions or forced upon you decisions is, is not as significant as other factors? Yeah, I don't think we believe it. Hmm. I think that we say it often to avoid really looking hard at the conversation, hard at the problem. But in our hearts of hearts, we know it's not true. We can see it in our daily lives, you know? Somebody gets a promotion who doesn't really deserve it, you know, but is kind of like, has a good connection with the boss, is pretty, um, is the right skin color. You know, we see these these ways, this irrationality of life all in our daily lives. And are we really going to tell Black families that, oh, you have far less wealth because of white families, because of you didn't work hard enough? Are we really going to look that... The person in the in the face who's cleaning our offices and our homes and has skin rashes because of the chemicals that she could just work her way out of it. I just don't think we believe it deeply, and so I think it's a time where the country can start raising raising new questions about this. And look, working hard is something that that we want to we tell our kids, and we also see it in our daily lives that you know working hard does does help, but it's not a theory of how the world works. And, you know, people that work hard should be rewarded for that. But there's a lot of people that are just working incredibly, incredibly hard, and they're stuck below the poverty line. And that's something the country should not be able to stomach. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things you, you that you outline in your book. I, I don't know if solutions are the right word. Maybe approaches would be a, a better word for it. And, and a first question, a sort of overarching question is, is, is this idea of, of combating poverty um, a, a partisan issue? You know, we see so much of of what we're dealing with now, social issues, are so terribly hyper-partisan, even tribal in some ways. Are are we seeing poverty looked at that way, or or are we seeing some progress in how, in terms of political parties and legislative approaches, how the concept of poverty is being viewed? Poor Americans deserve better than what either party has delivered for them over the last 50 years. And it is true 
that the Democrats are much more likely to support uh, stronger, robust anti-poverty measures than Republicans are at the, the level of leadership and the party level. On the ground level, I think there's quite a lot of overlap. There's a lot of uh, Republican voters out there that want to see wages go up, that want to see housing prices be stabilized, that want more broad prosperity. To share you a quick story from my book, um, there was a protest led by One Fair Wage, um, this group that's trying to end subminimum wage, tipped tipped work. And they were at Albany, New York protesting, and most of them were, were Black and Latino women. And um, suddenly a, a, a group of, of, of white folks with red hats come over and they were, they were MAGA protesters, Stop the Steel protesters. And they were having the rallies on the same day. And the Stop the Steel guys were like, well, what are you guys doing? What are you protesting? And they're like, we want higher wages. We're working for this. And they're like, that, with that, we care about that too. And they shook hands and they joined the protest. Now, I don't want to be Pollyannish, but I also think that on basic issues of economic fairness and justice, there's quiet. There's quite a lot of... Um, of overlap and agreement among among the American people. What we need to push on is is our leaders. Wow. Let's talk about again some of the the scenarios, some of the approaches that you talk about in your book. Um, we we often refer to the notion of a safety net, the creation mm -hmm. of a safety net here, and I think. Some people who are looking at the, at the levels of poverty might have the notion, well, the safety net has shrunk. There's not as much out there to provide the, the protection, the ability to catch somebody and, and, and abort their fall, if you would, into poverty. And one of the things you talk about that I was struck by is you said it's not necessarily a problem of, of welfare dependency, but rather welfare avoidance. How do you mean that? Right. So a lot of us, we hear about welfare dependency all the time. We heard about it all, all the time in COVID, right? Uh, these, you know, this extra unemployment insurance is not keeping people, uh, it's keeping people home. They're not going to work. And it just wasn't empirically true. The data didn't show that. And we can dig into that if you want. And if you look in the data, you know, what you learn is that the, the much bigger problem is welfare avoidance. And what I mean by that is families are not taking advantage of programs directed at them. So there's a program called the Earned Income Tax Credit that's to give low-income uh, earners a boost at the end of the year, tax season. Uh, it's a big program, but one in five workers who could qualify for that boost don't don't take advantage of it. One well, in five why, elderly... do, why do you, why do you I, I, I don't want to interrupt. I want you to get back to those numbers in a minute, but but I, I've got to ask the question, why do you think that is? Why would people, if it's there and it's designed to help them, why would they not take advantage of it? Well, we used to think it was stigma. You know, the people were embarrassed. Right. And there is something to that. There is still a, a, a something about being broken America that, America that does come with this deep, deep sense of stigma. But the better evidence suggests that we've made these programs confusing, hard to apply for, um, baffling. And this is this is quite enraging because, you know, I have a phone. I can I can click a few buttons. I could have basically anything delivered to my home tomorrow. We know how to market things to people in this country. We know how to deliver things, but we haven't taken that same amount of effort and creativity and applied it to making sure families who need and deserve certain help get it. And when I say welfare avoidance, I'm talking about huge numbers. You know, if you add up the, the amount of money left on the table and food stamps and worker benefits, unemployment insurance, health care, you're talking about over 140 billion, billion with a B dollars a year. This is not a picture of welfare avoidance. This is a picture of us as a nation not doing a good enough job of helping the most vulnerable uh, people in our country. 
I think people would be astonished to know that. Mm -hmm. I think if you ask somebody on the street, ask 10 people, they'd probably say, you know what, there's not enough money. People are just, everybody's jumping into these programs and pulling the money out of it, and there's not enough. I think that to find that people are, who are genuinely qualified and, and who these programs are designed to help are, are just resistant for some reason. How do we get that message across? How do we, how do we move that needle, if you will, to say to people, try to do away with the stigma. Don't feel bad about this. This is designed to help you so that you can make your own personal progress. How do we get that message out? Yeah, this is this is on our government. This is not on the families. You know, and so if you look at food stamps, some states, every almost everyone in the state who could apply for food stamps, who qualifies for them, receives them. And in other states, the numbers are way lower. And so it's not that there's certain folks in Oregon that are less stigmatized than certain folks in, in California, for example. California does a worse job than Oregon getting families aid. Uh, for meeting basic food needs. So this is about caring about that deeply, making sure that every dollar in the budget gets out the door. So there's really easy things we can do, like literally making the font bigger or connecting folks to a helper that walks them through the steps of how to apply to aid and takes you know half an hour. These little things can have huge benefits on the number of folks that sign up. One of, one of the things that you urge and I think this is essential to, to, to what your book, I want to ask you if it's essential, is that the idea that we need to become, in your words, poverty abolitionists. That's a very strong word, obviously echoes of, of slavery and racial inequality. Right. Why use the term poverty abolitionist and what does it mean? You know, when uh, President Johnson launched the war on poverty in 1964, it wasn't just talk, you know, they set a deadline. They said, you know, we're going to end poverty in this land by 1976. And we didn't, but they cut it in half in 10 years. You know, we used to, as a country, have moral ambitions for the eradication of poverty, not the reduction of it, not to nudge it here on the edges, but to get rid of it in this incredibly wealthy land. And I love that you brought up other movements for abolition because like the movement to abolish slavery or the movement to abolish prisons today. Poverty abolitionism sees poverty as an abomination, as something we can't tolerate. And it sees the, the practice of profiting from someone else's pain as something that, that corrupts us all, that diminishes us all. And so poverty abolitionism, it's a political project, right? You do need new policies. You do need social movements, but it's also a personal one too. It's one that's asking all of us to divest from poverty and things like our consumption choices, how we live, uh, how we uh, push the government on certain ways. It's something that is a belief and a kind of vision of the world that should should, should be there in our everyday choices. You, um, I've, got, uh, I've got about three minutes here. Let me try and fit in two quick questions, all right? right. Um, one of them is that you, you wrote recently a New York Times piece where you said your words, poverty isn't just a failure of public policy, it's also a failure of public virtue. Why? So there was a study published uh, last year, a few years ago, that showed that if the top 1% of us just pay the taxes they owed, um, we could this raise- is, This is you in the say, not saying raise taxes on the top 1%, right? right. Just, just what you owe. Stop evading taxes, just pay with, pay, pay your fair share that we as a nation would take in an additional $175 billion a year. So that's a big number. What does that mean? 
that's that's almost enough to pull everyone out of poverty, right? And then we have the audacity, the shamelessness, really, to ask how we can afford to do better, how we can afford to expand opportunities for kids, how we can stop mass homelessness in this country. That's a sinful question. How can we afford it? That's a dishonest question. I think even asking that question is a failure of public virtue. When you say it's a, it's a sinful question, yeah. it's an interesting accusation. Yeah. How do you mean? Look, if we were a country that was pinched, if we were a country that didn't allow so much tax evasion among the richest of us, if we were a country that didn't subsidize affluence instead of alleviate poverty, then we might just have to be like, we got to do better. Our economy has to grow. But that's not us. Who we are is a country that allows massive tax evasion at the front. We as a country give more to families that have plenty already. And we have to address that. And that is a is a failure of, of public policy. But public policy just reflects a kind of morality. And so I think we have to own that imbalance that we've tolerated. And for those of us that profit from that, I think we have to, to, to take accountability and to say, look, these tax breaks that I get, they're nice. They're nice. But I don't want them if they come at the expense of this. I don't want them if they mean... We have millions of, of homeless kids in the country. I don't want them if it means all these workers have to pay be paid poverty wages. I want to live in a happier, safer, freer country. And if that means I have to give a little material sacrifice to get to that better spiritual place, I'm willing to make that deal. Well, we could talk for hours about this. Uh, again, the book is called, it's titled Poverty by America, Professor Matthew Desmond. It, it is um, a deeply compelling, informative troubling in many ways and evocative and provocative which is i'm sure what you want it to be but it just just well done on this and we appreciate so much you spending some time talking with us we'll look forward to talking with you again down the road uh, congratulations yeah. again on this work and you be well thank you you too sir thank you for having me Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. you can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.